1: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector Daisy Buchanan. A new novel, Careering, is coming in March. It's about Imogen, Harry and the joy of doing a job you love and the pain of realising it will never love you back. Stylist, good housekeeping and sheer Lux have all picked Careering as one of their top novels for 2021. Waterstones.com have exclusive signed copies of Careering for your book listeners to pre-order. Listeners can also pre-order the exclusive Waterstones paperback of Insatiable, the filthy, funny story of Violet who's feeling lost and finds herself in the middle of a memorable ménage a trois. The exclusive edition features a brand new essay, an extra sexy scene and sprayed edges. Now on to today's guest, Jemina Matthewson. Writer and actor Janina is the author of the hugely acclaimed novel Of Things Gone Astray and appears in the immersive storytelling Night Vale podcast Within the Wires. Her new book, You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, is written with Night Vale creator Jeffrey Craner, a fictional biography that explores themes of lost choice connection and alienation. Janina and I talked about Agatha Christie, spoilers, speculative fiction, Bridget Jones, Susanna Clark, and manga. Janina is a very old beloved friend, so we had a lot to catch up on. Like what kind of reader are you? Do you read every day? Do you have fits and starts? And have you had periods of your life where you've sort of fallen in and out of love with it?
2: Um. Yes, to to all of the above. Sometimes I read every day all the time for a long time. And sometimes I just don't read at all. Um. I feel like I had a few years where reading felt really hard and dry. And everything, I try, I kept trying to read books that people would go on about being amazing and just didn't vibe with them. And I was like, oh, I've lost it. I've lost reading forever. Um, which I then got knocked out of just by reading two really good books. The, um, Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood and, um, Melmoth by Sarah Perry, uh, which both just, the prose is so alive in them that you just can't not like fall back in love with reading, so I had someone I was like, no, it was the books that were wrong. I
1: <laughs> love Priest Daddy so much, and she's just got the most sensational voice yeah. in that. And actually, having recently read her new book that was uh, long-listed for the Booker, and if I keep talking, I uh, will try to um, remember. I can see the cover. No one is talking. Oh. About no one this. is talking about yes. this, which I loved so much. I think if I was really new to her writing, I would have found it quite challenging, quite daunting, yeah. because pre-study is so immediate and so electric
2: It's like i've got a way in i haven't i haven't read no one is talking about this yet and despite the fact that i love her so much just because i know what it's about and i don't know if i'm ready for it like i've been reading mostly fun stuff recently because of everything um like i I reread all of the princess diaries books which i highly recommend Uh, oh they're so good they're so good they're so good um so i haven't i haven't quite i've i've been slowly building up to, like, uh, books that are less just balls-to-the-wall fun. But I don't know if I'm ready for... I
1: just Now I want to reread The Princess Diaries. I, mean, I love Michael. It. I love me as mum and her yes. Christmas tree with the dead celebrity decorations. Yeah.
2: It's, I love Lars. Lars got short shrift in the movie because they changed him completely. But Lars in the books is so beautiful. It's so beautiful man. I love is him. he
1: the bodyguard? Is he the one who's driving into yeah, school? Yeah, yeah. But Princess Doris that's definitely something I'm, you know, I'm going to be squirrelling myself over, over Christmas. <laughs> Dude, It is um, so, so fun.
2: Tell me about Melmoth though, because I haven't read that. <sighs> Melmoth is wonderful. I think, I think Sarah is one of the, I like just casually one of the most interesting authors currently working because she's so good at, she has so many different ideas that she draws on and all of her books are so very much their own thing. Like, they're all different they all have they all have are different in tone, and they all feel so well suited to be the thing that they are and Melmoth is just I think her masterpiece it's like just unfolding horror like gently through it to the extent that because it's because it's a gothic novel and it plays on that gothic thing of like here is a person who is undergoing a horror and who is reading all of the accounts of other people who have undergone this same horror and Honestly, when you turn the last page, it feels like Melmoth is standing behind you, and if you turn your head, you'll see her, and I, like I felt her around me for like a solid couple of months after reading that book. It, is, it gets under your skin. it is so, so good. And like I love the Essex Ser- Serpent because it's this, this joyous romp, and after me comes the flood, it's this taut, tense thing, but Melmoth is like really something special I think oh
1: gosh when you described it then I felt like a twinge I could sort of feel everything contracting like oh because I don't know that I don't really read horror and I don't like being scared and yet when I am and when I'm scared well and there's that menace like you know some Elizabeth Jane Howard short stories and things and that there's nothing scarier really than your own mind and what's lurking and what you think you've seen.
2: Yeah. I don't often get scared. I don't scare easily in horror movies or anything like that, but the times where I am unnerved, it's always on the page, I think. Like I remember reading this Agatha Christie short story collection that I got out from the school library when I was like 14 or 15 and it had like a short story adaptation of the mousetrap, which I guess, you know, she wrote the play and then Mm. there was a short story version as well, um, which I've not been able to find since, but that, was the first time I was ever scared. Was just the the way, and because like, the play itself isn't isn't really scary. It's mm. a it's a farce as well as a you know, a murder mystery. But the way that she talks about the someone picking out a three blind mice on the piano as someone is being murdered, mm. in that in prose, uh, yeah, really wigged me out. <laughs> it was very good. Do you want to actually? Do you want to know my discovery of Agatha Christie? Oh please, this tell is me. Uh, this is the most devious thing that anyone in my family has ever done to another person uh it was just I must have been about like 12 maybe 12 or 13 and we were away on a family holiday we didn't have a lot of money and we had a lot of children so we always just went to like someone's old barn that they'd converted into a house in a rural village somewhere um and we had seen my sister and I had seen ads for the Peter Ustinov "Death on the Nile," and that was—we'd never heard of Agatha Christie before. We just thought it looked really good, and we were gonna watch it. And then I got in trouble, and I got sent to bed early, so I didn't get to watch it. Oh. <laughs> and so the next morning, my sister. Told me the entire story, including drawing little portraits of all the characters so that I could keep track. Through to the end, including who the murderer was and everything. And then at the end of the story, said, it's based on a book. I'm going to get it out of the library when we get back home so you can read it. I was like, oh, (laughs) just set out carefully to spoil the whole book. Thank you
1: for ruining that. Bugger! And did you know? So you didn't know it was based on a book, which is why no, you let her tell you everything. Yeah,
2: because we were tiny children, we were idiots. We'd never heard of Agatha Christie. Have you read it since? Have oh yeah, yeah. And like I yourself? like, I love, I love, love Agatha Christie. I think I think I really enjoy them, just as romps. Even when I know everything, I've reread, I've read and reread *Death and the Nile* since then, and I've done it with a lot of them because I think I just really enjoy her writing. I think she's funny, and the characters are interesting as well as. It being a puzzle I, don't know. I often
1: think that rereading is such a smart thing to do as a writer because I think that's how you learn how a story is told and you really get to study someone's craft from different angles I mean, do you think yeah. you've learned anything from Agatha Christie as a as a writer
2: not I mean how prob- to murder. probably I'm not not how to murder no I mean I've never tested what I've learned regarding how to murder people <laughs> um but yeah I think I think she was probably one of the first writers I read who did like interesting and weird things with narrative and how you frame things and how important it is when you give the audience certain pieces of information um, because that's you have to, in detective fiction that's like I, I think it's paramount in all fiction but in detective fiction it's really really key. So yeah, knowing how to hold up the tension and to keep things secret until the right moment.
1: I'm curious about what it was like for you growing up in New Zealand, where I imagine there was lots of British and American fiction, mm-hmm. but are there any voices that you think we should like hear more, you know, globally, that we don't hear about, or any writers that you
2: love and you've come to the UK and be like, how do you not know these people? <laughs> uh, the problem is, is that in New Zealand, we um, we have a really bad case of cultural cringe that's very, very difficult to unlearn. um so we have a lot of amazing amazing writers obviously uh but i didn't really read them growing up because i just assumed that if they were from new zealand they were dumb because we're just new zealand and no one here so it's only really as an adult that i've begun exploring new zealand fiction which i feel very guilty about because there's amazing stuff there and um some of that obviously has made it over here like i think witty hamara who is who wrote Whale Rider, I think, has got a bit of recognition. I have learned recently that one of New Zealand's iconic children's books, Everyone Thinks is Scottish, Lindley Dodd, who wrote um, Harry McCleary from Donaldson's Dairy. Yes. People I think that that is this. Scottish. Not. It's from New Zealand. She's from New Zealand. That is a New Zealand dairy. Uh, not, not a British one. Because New Zealand dairies and British dairies are different things. Oh, I didn't know that. I was so. Dairy is what we call a little corner shop. Oh. So it's where you go for your milk and your paper in the morning. But there are definitely amazing New Zealand writers that people should check out. Like Patricia Grace is amazing. Elizabeth Knox is incredible. Um, And yeah, there are lots that I need to... I feel like
1: Elizabeth Knox has maybe come up on the podcast before. Remind me what she wrote.
2: Um, I think her most famous one is probably The Vinter's Luck. Her new one, The Absolute Book, which I have not read yet, but it's sitting over there, um, I think has been really well received. She's wonderful, sort of does um, kind of speculative fiction or not speculative a little bit magical realist i guess
1: i'm gonna ask a really embarrassing question that's going to put me in an awful light what exactly is speculative fiction because people mention it and i would be like oh yeah that's um mm, and i don't think i really know (laughs) i think
2: it's basically is to sci-fi what magical realism is to fantasy and that it's like mostly set in this world but just not quite like things are a little bit different or maybe things are how they could be, but aren't like it's sci-fi that is a little bit more grounded in reality. So
1: not a full dystopia, but just a nudge to the left or the right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ah, Yeah. And with some sci-fi elements that feel more possible than like your star wars. Um, I'm looking at this bookcase
1: and it's nice. I could go up and look, but it's nice that I can see it, um, from where I'm sitting. Um, I love How to Be Both. I always think of that because I tried to read How to Be Both and I didn't like it and I didn't get on with it. And then I had to read it again. I thought, oh no, and I was reading it for someone else's podcast. And the second time around, I loved it. Are there any books where you've had that happen?
2: I tend to read multiple books at a time, which often means that I end up not like forgetting that I'm reading one, which I generally assume is because it's not good enough, like it's not holding my attention and I'm not that into it. But and definitely, sometimes when I go back to those later, I I commit more. But I can't think of anything specific. And do
1: you ever feel like you consciously give up and say, no, no more of this, I'm done? Or are you always hypothetically halfway through it?
2: I'm usually hypothetically halfway through it. Yeah, I think I think something has to be not grabbing me at all for me to deliberately put it aside. I think it's been a while since I've started because I tend to like if I I tend to look at the first page and if the first page grabs me, I will continue. But if it doesn't, I don't. So I don't think I often get to that point where it's, yeah, something I want to... Oh, what was the
1: last from? first page you read where you felt, holy wow, and felt like the hand was coming out of the book to
2: grab you through it? Oh, that's a really good question. Oh man,
1: I don't know. I do, I'm looking back at that shelf and I think I remember feeling a bit that way about The Secret History. Again, a book I talk about far too much. Where, And I think it was that one where I felt quite grieved about it and a bit put off because everyone was like, Read this. I'll get round to it. (laughs) And I didn't, I thought it was going to be a bit kind of dry and dusty and a bit holding your arms length. And actually, it does really pull you in It really
2: does. Do you know what? I think the last one that really grabbed me was actually, it was the introduction that grabbed me, which was they, they did the, re- the recent re-releases of all of Eva Ibbotson's oh, books. Yes. and um And my friend Ella had written the introduction for one of them and her introduction is beautiful, but what she says about it, she has this line where she's just like, Eva Ibbotson talked about how she wrote pe- books for people with the flu. And I was like, this is glorious! <laughs> I can't wait! And then, yeah, the, all of her books are amazing, but I think that one is my favorite, oh. the, the Song for Summer, which that was the book.
1: What happens in the Song for Summer?
2: Song for Summer is like set in a little school in the middle of nowhere in the countryside um, in one of the countries that has not yet sort of fallen to the growing Nazi army and where people are trying to run a school. And uh, it centres around this woman who grew up in London, to raised by these strident feminist sisters and then decides that she wants to be a housekeeper and to look after people um, which is against everything she was raised to believe but it's just what she wants Um, so she runs away to be housekeeper of the school and it's glorious and wonderful. Oh that sounds really modern as well Yeah I mean I think Eva the thing is she just talks about people in a way that they could have existed at any time and all of her books are sort of set between the wars but they do feel sort of timeless because it's just people being people. I love. I think it's the Secret Countess, where there's this completely mad subject yeah. about like sort of eugenics,
1: and yes. this woman who's in a cult, and she could be like an LM, MLM goop devotee, and <laughs> yeah. the like guru who's taking all her money. And yeah. it feels so fresh, and it's really fun to think, oh, this has been happening forever. forever, but It's a yeah. bit like me, and like I think everything was invented in 1998: murders, pyramid <laughs> schemes, all of it. <laughs> But that that she's so good as well at taking you... That sense of sort of taking someone and isolating them but in a nice way and putting them in a new place. So you're experiencing this new world right with the heroine alongside them. And it's such a simple kind of... Once you, you know, spot that pattern, you're like, well, of course you do that, but it's so effective.
2: Yeah. She's also so kind about Mm. people. Like, there are antagonists, but there aren't really villains. they are just people who... Like, there's empathy for everyone, and it's... Yeah, those books are amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, people
1: are made to just look foolish, aren't they? They're never really written off.
2: Yeah. Or just, like, they are operating on a different wavelength to the other people, and that is why they're wrong. And that's... They just need to find the place where they're right, and that's okay. Who...
1: Which characters do you think of as friends or people you'd maybe like to be friends with?
2: Oh, there are so many. I mean, so many. Obviously, all of, like, at least... At least three of the Bennets, obviously. Um, has that
1: changed? Like, do you? Because I wonder if it's it's like your favourite beetle changes and your favourite Little Women changes. Like your your Bennett pals, do they rotate or has it always been solid I, group?
2: I mean, obviously, it's always Elizabeth and Jane. I have more, much, much more sympathy for Missus Bennett mm-hmm. now that I'm a, an adult than I did when I first read those as a teenager. Um, actually, this is not. This isn't, this isn't an interesting thing that is completely a tangent, but do you find that when you reread something you read it as a teenager as an adult, your your attitude to different characters changes? Because I just reread Circle of Friends and I hadn't reread it since I was a teenager and I just felt so much for Nan this time around where before, when I read it as a kid, she was the villain and she was just straight through and through the villain of the, of the book. But she, like, my god, that that girl goes through so much. She's in an impossible position the whole time and she makes the wrong choice but she is, like, also you can understand why it seemed to her like the only one, you know? And as a kid I was like, oh no, Nan fucks over Benny and how dare she? But, you know.
1: I really need to reread that. Oh, have
2: I even ever read Circle of Friends? Do I just think <gasps> I do? Because I oh. thought
1: it would be better. Do, I'm a very, really late to Maeve Binchy, and I love her. I love... Uh-huh. Um, is it Evening Classes? Yeah,
2: Evening Classes, wonderful. Um, and Tara Road is wonderful. Yeah. I'm just trying to think
1: about who I've changed my mind about, because I definitely, definitely have. unhelpfully. Um, Pete Campbell from Mad Men, which doesn't count, because that's... <laughs> Away from the world of books, <laughs> I'm seeing if anything sparks off. I mean, Mrs. Bennett is a really great one because you know she is making the best of very, you know, limited and difficult circumstances. Yeah. and you sort of, you feel as though Mr. Bennett has checked out a bit. He's yeah, he's not, not taking part anything. in the marriage or the family
2: because he doesn't have to worry. Because the only point the family will be in trouble is if he dies. So he will just die, leaving them with nothing. It's Mrs. Bennett who her own survival depends on this. think that can be one of the most heartbreaking things sometimes in fiction is like when you can see what the characters can't see Mm. you can see what they're the you can see the roadblocks they're putting in their own way and they're probably not too dissimilar to the ones that i don't know we all have at some point but
1: yeah it's a really powerful thing i think to bring about in a reader you're sort of that invested but also you can zoom out yeah
2: yeah completely
1: um bit like um the vanishing half i guess which i still haven't quite i mean i love it i think it's a fantastic book um in terms of the twins and i can't remember which one leaves and which one stays um
2: i haven't i haven't actually read that yet um because i bought that i read an i read an essay by brit bennett and i loved it so much um this was like when it was first out before it was you know, the biggest book of the year. And I was like, That's, she's such an amazing writer. I'm going to buy this book. And then I just have, in in my pandemic brain, I've just been kind of reading a lot. I've been focusing on fun nonsense. So Princess Diaries, of course. I read a lot of Julia Quinn. Um, <laughs>
1: ah.
2: Yeah, this is where I've been. Um, so Were you a
1: fan before Netflix, before Bridgerton was there?
2: Well, a friend of mine show? wrote on that show. So I read them, I read the books because she had got that job before, like... I I was just about to go to New Zealand and they were great plain reads so that's when I read the um the Bridgerton books and then after the show I read a lot i read a lot of her others which are all kind of set in the same world so you see like Lady Danbury wanders through all of them and it's very very, very fun but yeah there are there are a, they're a, a oh, fun I time I love
1: that so much when there's a thread of a uni- and you know these books can be standalones and you don't have to yes. know it all but it's just that lovely like oh okay
2: yeah I which that. Maeve Finch does as well yes. which is always so delightful yeah Mary Wesley. Yeah, and it's like you just give a nice little coda on everyone's lives and, oh, yeah, here they are, living happily ever after.
1: Um, now, I
2: know you are a reader of graphic novels, and yes. which is something well, I some, know yeah. nothing about and I'd love to hear more about. I mean, I, this is something that my partner sort of got me into more. Um, so we've got... Do, should we go, should we let's go, look, go, let's the, go look Let's go look. Let's go look at the graphic novel shelf. Um, yeah, because he got me into, like... The, Scott, the Scott Pilgrim books, which I'd seen the film um, and, the, and enjoyed. Uh, but the books are, like, incredible. So, so This so is a dumb good.
1: question. Were they graphic novels first? I have seen yes. the film and I really enjoyed the film.
2: They were graphic novels first. I think only the first three were out when Edgar Wright was making the film. But the books are so good. They do so much more with the ensemble because it's such a great ensemble. Mm. Um, so you learn a lot more about Ramona and Knives and Kim and everyone in there. Hilarious and great.
1: Um, and I should probably talk about because it's a, it's a beautiful book called "You Feel It Just Below the Ribs," <laughs> a novel by Jeffrey Craner and Janina Matthewsson, <laughs> oh, creators of "Within the Wires." So, tell me about this book and how it came about.
2: Yeah, it is. Um, so, it's just out currently in the US and Canada. Um, so, there are, I think, Portal Bookshop is doing imports for the UK. But yeah, it's uh, an alternate history. F- fictional autobiography about a woman who lives through, so in this alternate world, there's this epic 30-40 year war that decimates the population um, and it charts sort of this one woman's life as she lives through that and then her contribution to rebuilding the world afterwards um, in ways that she thinks are going to be positive but they might be, you know, pushed a bit further into a, a an area that has not great implications for society as it grows um but at the same time it's been like the idea is that she wrote this out and left it and died and someone else has found it and is publishing it and is annotating all of her claims uh to just put them in their proper context or maybe question their veracity so it's kind of like a a two unreliable narrators situation. so is that
1: how the co-writing works
2: no the co-writing is much more pedestrian than that we just kind of uh do an outline, we go away and work on stuff and then come back together and talk about it. Um, and then, yeah, we both worked on all of it. Because obviously, um,
1: you know, this is not your first novel. Um, is that of Things Gone Astray?
2: Yeah. Which yeah. is
1: also wonderful. Um, but how, I mean, I imagine you want to write in all ways that you're not like, no, only collaborations from now on. But, um, you know, what are the. The highlights and sort of positive things about working with someone else and do you ever have moments where you think, oh, it would be easier if it was just me?
2: The bits that it would be easier are at the later stages when you suddenly have to do like line edits and like rewrites and you have to both be okay with everything but you don't necessarily have more time than you would have if you were doing it alone so you have to kind of do those so quickly. I was up until four in the morning doing the copy edit (laughs) on this one like (laughs) Jamie, my partner, came out because he thought I'd died. Um, oh. <laughs> so I don't oh. normally stay up here. He's like, you're still alive. Um, but it really means that, you like, for me, we plan a lot more than when I write alone. Like, we had a really comprehensive outline before we started writing the actual book. Whereas when I work alone, I tend to have a bit of an outline, but kind of just push through and wing it a bit more. Um, which you can't really do when you're collaborating. I don't think it doesn't, because um, you you're going to write off in the wrong direction and get too far away from each other, I think.
1: Do you think that will inform the work you do as a solo writer? Do you Because I feel like I'm not a good planner and I wish I was, but I often am only able to figure out what I want to do as I write and it goes in a different direction and it's just, it's getting my a bit of my brain to work in a certain way that taps into
2: something that I just couldn't do if I was like, right, chapter 13, blah and blah and blah. I think so. I think also it helps me I think I will always want to have a bit more freedom when I'm working alone to to go off in a a way that I wasn't expecting to. Not that you can't do that when you collaborate, uh, but you are more free to. Uh, But also I think having collaborated makes it easier for me to sort of think about writing in a more pragmatic way. I think when I work alone, it's really easy for me to sort of get in my head and dig myself into a pit about like, I have to make this as good as it is in my head and I have to do all this stuff, whereas when you're collaborating, you just have to get something done in time for this meeting that you have to talk about what you've done. And then when you have those meetings, you're talking about everything and you have to pull apart and deconstruct it and like just get to the really important key things, which always feel a little bit it feels like a dry way to talk about them, but they're really it's really necessary because you're you're making something. Like you it is a craft as much as anything else. And it helps you to pull apart those pieces so you can put them together in a sensible way so that the, it works that's so
1: wise I think it gets so easy to fetishize writing be like my art my art makes me so miserable and I'm oh, so like- tortured and it's worth it and then when you do have someone else depending on you to get things done in a time frame yeah you're like it'll be something
2: yeah so I think the only advice on writing that I've ever really glommed onto was Agatha Christie actually who has this passage where she talks about you aren't some grand artist, you are a carpenter and you, you are making someone a table and it can be as beautiful as you want it to be but it has to be functional. Like someone has to be able to set it and eat, an and that's what a novel has to be as well. It has to communicate something and if it's not, doesn't work on a functional practical level then it won't communicate anything. So you've got to be able to step back I think and look at, look at the pieces. I feel like
1: Agatha Christie should have been a judge on that great British wood show. <laughs> I think she would have been great. Um are there what are these um, uh, books over here?
2: Oh, you found you found the nerd stash. You found the weeb stash. <laughs> so unfortunately, we're massive nerds in this house. And uh, a while ago, I'd say celebrate. Great. (laughs) It's
1: a wonderful thing. I'm a nerd, all of our listeners are nerds. Um, Different flavours of nerd.
2: So we have a few mangas and the most important one is Kaguya sama Lovers War, which is um, essentially a rom-com series with the tension and uh, stakes of like a Cold War spy thriller. Wow. So it's these two genius teenagers who are also idiots and um, neither of them will admit that they're in love with the other person so it's about their war to try and make the other one admit their feelings while they give away nothing and it's magical.
1: When did you start reading these?
2: Well my partner Jamie had seen a little bit of the anime and he was like I've been watching this mad anime (laughs) do you want to try it and he didn't tell me anything about it and we watched it and it's hilarious um and so after having watched it we we ordered all of the books.
1: (laughs) Oh cool because I know so little about that world and that work and it's partly because I don't really know like where to begin or how to access it
2: I feel like it's one of those things where because of the way it's talked about you have this impression of of manga and anime as if it's just one thing like it's big mech suits and going super saiyan and all of that but there is so much else there like there are these beautiful little domestic stories there's comedy it's I mean, all of the ones that I like are, are very, very good comedies. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize how many different things there were.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
1: We'll be back with Janina soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Fraud by Anita Bruckner. Anna Durrant is a quiet, dignified, dutiful woman on the cusp of middle age. He disappears. And no one seems to notice. What begins as a mystery or a detective story to unravel becomes a darkly comic, desperate, wryly told litany of hope's dreams, managed expectations and disappointments. Bruckner is one of those writers who somehow gets down pages of prose that is perfectly crafted and yet also gulpable, a page-turner where every single line counts. It's melancholy, but oddly hopeful, and it reminds us that every single human contains multitudes, a comforting message and a necessary one. Fraud by Anita Bruckner is published by Penguin and out now. Now, back to Janina. Do you have a favourite funny book, or what do you think is the funniest book?
2: Oh, I mean, probably Bridget Jones. Probably. We, I believe,
1: had a Bridget Jones picnic in the park. We did. And I can't, it was in May and I can't remember what it was. Oh, it was the anniversary of was it um I just remember it was it was the summertime yeah. and I know that Shaz and Jude came to Bridget's house with a specific M&S food, the, um, milk tray and salmon pinwheels and Chardonnay. And so we replicated this as best we could yeah. with the resources available at the Marks and Spencers in Greenwich.
2: And then we read it aloud to each other. To <laughs> it was beautiful. It was a magical time.
1: Remind me, because I know you've talked about this, when did Bridget come into your life? I
2: mean, when I was a teenager, definitely. I think, I think the copy that I had was like the movie edition uh. I'm pretty sure it had Renee Zellweger on the cover. So I guess around when the movie was being made. But I'm pretty sure I'd read it first. And it took me a very long time to work out because that uh Bridget like has severe body dysmorphia. Mm. Because all of the weight that she marks in her book is in stones. And I'm from New Zealand. We talk about kilograms. So I, I, I just ignored it. And then there was a point where I did a conversion on the internet to see what she actually weighs. Because I was curious. And I was like, oh, she weighs the same as me. And I was like, is that bad and then like five years after that realization i was like no she is wrong she's wrong about herself and like you should know because she fits into all jude's dresses so she's obviously not that much bigger than jude
1: and i suppose the point being that was you know it was meant to be a reflection of what was happening not an instruction not a comment and that you know women are sort of so held back and she feels that um oh i think even like magda says something about you know the pressure to be this of like the super duper businesswoman and yeah it's about you know the old like having it all yeah and now we um old millennials we have nothing
2: (laughs) yeah and it's like this double whammy of a you are fat when you are probably not and b being fat is bad when it definitely is not and it's so hard to unpick that
1: but I do I remember reading there's that scene where she does finally get to like her goal weight she's she's in the prison. It oh the- no, it's in the first book I think. And she goes to this party and she talks about it and she's mystified because she says in her diary, I went to the gym, which is something, but it's not unusual. I've done nothing different but just the scales say, I am this weight. <laughs> went to this party, everyone's pissed, and everyone's sort of looking at me like, Bridget, are you all right? And there's a bit where someone sort of looks at her, her cleavage like, look a bit tired you look a bit drawn and everyone's really drunk and giddy and having a lovely time she's sipping her peppermint tea being like this sucks Yeah. and she's finally got into like this black dress um, that she's been and everyone's like have you, have you been ill I've lost half a stone um, yeah. which I thought was a perfect like Helen Fielding's way of yeah. making clear how mad it was but also that scene got cut from the movie because apparently no American audience would understand the idea that weight loss could ever be yeah. a bad thing or a, a complicated yeah. and conflicted thing.
2: Yeah, it is It is wild. And I think, like, I watched the movie actually quite recently in the last year or so, and I remember thinking, how all of, there was all of this news about how much weight Renee Zelliger was putting on to play this role and how, and her dramatic post-filming, you know, regime to get back into shape. And I was watching it and I was like, I remember taking all of those stories at face value and she is tiny. She is the size of my thigh in that movie. And like, we're meant to. Honestly, what were we talking about in the early 2000s and the 90s about women's bodies? It's just. It's wild to think about. I don't
1: think anyone had. We were ma- made to feel, and not just by that, it was just by all of culture and life like yeah. having an arse was wrong ideally you just go from like fly to flank with yeah. no outward curve yeah. but also i forget that bridget jones is a brilliant book about books it's about yes. publishing it's such a great satire of that industry and it how it really really it is changed yeah <laughs>
2: uh i think that's actually another character who i have loved more in subsequent readings is perpetua mm. i would die for perpetua I think she's because amazing because that's the other thing isn't it that Perpetua is and Bridget I think
1: starts as like she's just so confident and I don't understand because yeah. she's you know not and she sort of talks about how can you be you know all I worry think about is what I weigh and how I look like Perpetua is you know written in that book as sort of a, a woman who is larger than Bridget and she's just all she cares about is um is buying um lamps with cats as bases <laughs> <laughs> buying flats on the Fulham Road yeah. Uh, let's that's look at this of... bookshelf. All right. Yeah. Um, what do you... Oh, wow. Tell me about that fabulous edition. I love this juxtaposition so much. Really gorgeous Folio <laughs> Society um, edition of Northanger Abbey, in its case. And then a Folio Society edition of Jurassic Park. Yeah. That's the coolest composition I've ever seen. I this,
2: think. Is, this is a tradition we have for birthdays, is buying each other a folio edition books. Oh, that's so um, lovely. So those are the two most recent ones. Um, Jamie got me Northanger Abbey for my birthday and I got him Jurassic Park for his I didn't want to assume it was that way around but I did (laughs) Northanger Abbey is I think my favourite unsung like no one ever talks Mm. about it it's the unsung Austen and it's one of my favourites I think it might be the funniest one sometimes I think it's the funniest one it's also the only one with a hero you'd actually want to be married to Mm. Mr Tilney is the only one who'd be any good in real life it's so true although yeah Mr Darcy's someone I think I've changed my mind about as well Mr. Darcy, the Quite thing that the thing about Mr. Darcy is right at the end. There's that line about how Elizabeth has to teach him to be able to be laughed at. I'm like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> Give me someone who can I know, put she... up with a bit of teasing from the off.
1: She doesn't owe him that at no. all. Although, um, I always get confused. Is it a uh, Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility? Yes. Who's Alan Rickman? And maybe
2: no, Willoughby. Uh, Alan Rickman is um, Colonel Brandon. Colonel Brandon. Willoughby is the bad. Is the bad Willoughby is one. bad, of yeah. course. But Brandon
1: ends up with Marianne. Yeah, which I've always been a bit weird about.
2: It always feels a little bit paternal. I do still quite fancy Colonel Brandon. I mean, me too. But she's 17. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, I think I find that particularly hard in the movie because that bit where he's like reading to her in the garden and she seems so young and like so lost and all of a sudden is just relying on him a bit too much
1: one of my problematic favorite books is daddy long legs which i think i read when Me i was do. seven or eight. Oh, i love
2: that book growing up
1: <laughs> and it's so, and you do you inhale it and it's like just the voice and it teaches you so much without knowing about tone of voice and how to create that and, how, yeah. and again it's that really brilliantly done you know i think i can't remember if i guessed about um god what's he called master jervis yes um snobby julia's yeah uncle or stepbrother or something and that's so creepy and it is so much in my
2: blood and my dna that i'll never (laughs) ever (laughs) yeah i know you i just yeah but the the, the thing i think about that is that they could have just become beautiful friends and that would have been fine like they didn't need to get married But I do, I think all the
1: time about the food in that book and the vast tea. So for listeners to give them a wee pricey, I'm sure they've all read it and they, you know, you can Google if not, but um, it's an epistolary novel, a word I have to say very slowly and carefully, about um, Jerusha Abbott, who is an orphan at, is it called like the School for Foundlings or something?
2: Oh it is, something awful like it isn't it? And she's the
1: oldest orphan and they don't know what she's going to do and a trustee of the orphanage pays for her to go to college in New England somewhere?
2: Somewhere
1: like that Um, and she goes and she's a poor girl among rich girls, but she's got an allowance. And it's just that love. I mean, one of my favourite things in books is when a poor person comes into a little bit of money and they're like, oh, and I bought these gloves and they were 14 <laughs> pence and they were lined with fur. Um, And it's just all these gorgeous details about her room, that she gets this chest of drawers and she pulls all the steps out and improvises herself a window seat and sort of how she makes friends, but also some really sad, searching, profound stuff about what it is to to not fit in and have to pretend and she does make friends like she has a nice time but she's always got this knowledge of being other
2: and there's so much there's so much in like what she doesn't know like all of the knowledge that everyone around Mm -hmm. her takes for granted and she gets laughed at because she doesn't know stuff and it's like just a really like heartbreaking example of how vastly economic situation affects your like your entire life because you just had all of her youth was lost to a substandard orphanage education and it's it's devastating it truly is but there is joy in it i think it's a good sort of book for empathy yeah. but maybe also the, the
1: troubling thing about yeah. the, the the romantic yeah
2: unfortunately the, the romantic <laughs> the romantic plot leaves a bit to, to be to be desired there i think
1: Um, I see uh, Joyland by Stephen King, which is not a book I know of the many Stephen Kings.
2: No, I think that is Janie's. Are you a reader of? The only Stephen King King I've read is On Writing, which is a fantastic book. The problem is, it's very unfair of me, but I've not got on with the Stephen King movies that I've seen. So I've never gone and read the books, which I really should. I mean, we have this beautiful folio edition of The Shining. I should read that.
1: Oh, I'm very jealous of your fabulous Society edition of Rebecca. That's a beautiful Isn't thing. It?
2: Yeah.
1: And a sparkly Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, I'm gonna.
2: Yeah. Steal this tradition. It's a on good one, one. These books. <laughs> uh, what are these Terry Pratchett books? These are the the new edition that they did the um a few years ago, um which I bought, I think I bought the first one at my own book launch. Oh, <laughs> that's
1: so cool. Yeah,
2: and it was on the recommendation of um, wonderful man John Underwood. Um, who miss very much. Yeah, who we miss very, very much and will till we die. Um, but I just saw these. I'd never got on board with uh, with Terry Pratchett. I'd never read any. I, I, I don't know why. I just didn't think they were going to be my thing. And then... Um, you know everyone talks about them all the time and I was at a bookshop and there were these beautiful editions so I asked John to recommend one for me and he told me to read Small Gods so I bought Small Gods and loved it and, um, st- and started to buy the rest of this version because they're so beautiful um, but I, I'm still making my way, way through them I've only read they're very cozy Christmas reads I think I, I read um, I read The Hogfather uh, last Christmas I think um, yeah.
1: Try not to sing a terrible version of that song. Hogfather <laughs> <laughs> does not scan so well. Um, I think John got me um, "Still Life with Woodpecker" by Tom Robbins. Yes. Also a very old Diana annual. I will treasure both forever.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I have "Still Life" somewhere because I knew how much he loved it, but I, I like. I don't know. I haven't read it yet, and I think part of that is because you know. It, it it feels like a touch point that I can still experience of him now that, you know, it's nice to have something from someone who's gone that um, is still there to be lived through. For sure. Yeah.
1: Are there any books that you have lent to someone or recommended and said, please, you'll love this so much, I know you will, and they've gone like... Mm-hmm. No, not for me
2: do you know the most recent time I can remember buying something or reading something because everyone said it was amazing was unfortunately Jilly Cooper which I feel like I'm going to get exiled for because I just did not get on with her which I feel like is a I don't know a betrayal because everyone I know loves her I think
1: that it must be I don't know what I'd feel about Jilly Cooper if I came to her as a woman in my 30s. I love her passionately, like a family member, but I can completely see... And also, um, there are a couple of books I've been reading recently where... um, as one brilliant book um, where there's, like, the main character, there's a couple... where her friend is a white woman who's married to a black man and even though I know absolutely that the writer would never in her heart want to say anything upsetting or mean or racist and mo- most of the book is them observing how this woman's family are mean and cruel and racist but just mm-hmm. some of the language and the way it's put and the way it's enough to really take you out of the story Yeah, and it's so hard to kind of to stay in the space you need and you know with Jilly there's still stuff now where I think I read it and I've read it so many times and I always knew it was never okay I wasn't like oh I've learned now that's bad but (laughs) I feel like it's but again I think you know I think she is a very kind writer and it's an expression of the times she was living in and the way she was raised I can absolutely understand that you know, now reading of the first time in 2021 is going to be hard work.
2: Yeah, and there is, there is. I mean, it's a difficult thing to balance, I think, reading past fiction. I just reread um, uh, Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, which is a wonderful book, but it is a very accurate re- representation of, you know, white people in Alabama in the first half of the 20th century. And there's a lot of racism and there's a lot of the N-word being said by everyone all the time. And it is a bit difficult to just and like the story's still wonderful and the characters are still wonderful and it's uh but it is it, it's can be difficult to get past it
1: especially when you just think about there it's like you know lots of sort of sexism as well and you're like gosh pe- people just went around all day being unpleasant in various ways you know it's like the you know why would you need to say the n word that often in fried green tomatoes land yeah, but
2: they... yet somehow you did yeah and and you know, they did. It's sit in a real place that was really like that. I'm sure it was, you know, Fanny Flag. It is her, it's it's her homeland. She knows how to talk about it.
1: I see a bookcase. Oh, can I talk before this book I'm passing on the table? By the key. <laughs> Tell me about um, Yours Cruelly, Elvira by Cassandra Peterson. Oh my God, is this, is this Elvira's memoir?
2: This is Elvira's memoir that just came out. We only watched elvira mistress of the dark a couple of years ago i'd never it feels very much like a movie i should have watched repeatedly growing up but for some reason i didn't i don't know that it made it to new zealand um and so we just sort of fell in love with her because
1: i feel like i know her i'm not sure i've ever even seen mistress of the dark but through through parody yeah. and through jokes and things is it Booberella? as a simpson's yes, version
2: yes yes Um, And she is wonderful. She's hilarious. Um, So my partner is reading that at the moment and he has compared it to, there's this wonderful memoir called Chomp Chomp Chomp, which is about this woman, Aileen something, I think. I can't remember her name. It's called, if you Google Chomp Chomp Chomp, (laughs) you will probably find it. So search. Um, It is about this woman who, uh, it's, it's her memoir about a time when she, I think she was defending her dogs from a bear and the bear clawed off her face and then she drove like 20 miles to get help with her own face like falling off and obviously it was horrendous and traumatic but she survived and she wrote this book and that's what gets you into it and then it turns out she just had this wild extraordinary life full of amazing stories that aren't to do with that but are awesome and interesting and um this turns out to be the same as Cassandra Peterson is this fascinating woman who's had this you know, incredible, exciting life. Brilliant. The crates um, on the back, we
1: hear praise from uh, RuPaul, Vita Von Cheese, Pamela Debar, and someone who
2: goes by Rob Zombie. <laughs> yeah, she's just, I just think Cassandra Peterson is a legend. She's amazing. I'm going to... Oh, we're going to the little
1: one. Move to the little one. Yeah. What do we have here? Oh, what's Make More Noise?
2: Oh, that's a little short story anthology there. Um, Ella Risbridge had a story in.
1: Celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Uh, that looks fun. I see Ella. He's got a story called The Tuesday Afternoon Ghost, which is a brilliant title. It is a brilliant title. Um. Oh, and how is that you have Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which I have heard about on another podcast I love called By the Book. Um, that, that was, was a gift. But I'm yeah. so... I mean, I love, really love a self-help book, and I'm a, a sucker. I am a certain kind of obnoxious white woman who is drawn into these things very much, but that one did not appeal to me. Yeah, the Life-Changing
2: it, Magic of Not Giving a Fuck is a wonderful book. Yeah, and because you've interviewed... Sarah the, Knight. Yeah, yeah, Sarah Knight. So she seems delightful, and I just was a little bit like, oh, a man has now done one
1: <laughs> when I saw that, you know? But I mean, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck is sort of extraordinary because... It started life as a parody book of life-changing magic of tidying up but it became this really liberating really accessible yeah. you know really powerful and it sounds so obvious like you you do not have to care so much about stuff you do not have to care about what people think of you if you don't do what people want they'll be upset and they'll be annoyed and they'll be angry for like half an hour to a month and then
2: they'll probably just forget it yeah yeah it's and like, I, I, I think know... that's obvious but you need to hear it it, to me it means something different coming from a woman as well because mm. I think women are asked to give more fucks yes. than men gen- generally speaking it's a different dynamic but I think that
1: you know, Sarah Knight's book is a great premise for a novel I don't know, it's probably been done but you know, to be something happens a bump on the head I love a bump on the head story, I love yeah. Last of the Day and then you're like, oh I stopped caring about all of this stuff how will my
2: life change? Yeah, I mean I wish I could get on that bump on the head. It would be amazing. Because the trouble with sort of self administering it is it could go very wrong. <laughs> yeah. You can't you'd need you'd need someone uh you'd, you'd need a trained professional to tell you exactly where to get that bump.
1: Um, I wanted to talk to you about the bookcase that is behind me mm-hmm. as I'm kneeling on your sofa because I saw a lot of um, Isabel Allende who's oh, also yeah. YB alumni. Um, tell me about her and when you started reading her books.
2: I love Isabel Allende. I think we discovered her, me and my, old, a lot of my reading I've sort of done in tandem with my older sister. We're very close in age and we have very sister, similar tastes. spoiled Death and Manile. Yes, yeah, yes. That one, her then. That one uh, yeah. Most of her, most of her influences have been good. It was just that one, there. <laughs> <laughs> which is a funny story. So it's okay. I forgive it. <laughs> I think she was the f- often the first to bring books home, and yeah, Daughter of Fortune just is so wonderful. And that was the fir- That's the first one that we read, and then we just branched out from there and read House of the Spirits, um, and yeah, she's just. I don't know. I think maybe that was my first ever sort of magical realist book, and it's a genre that I've grown to love a lot since then. And yeah, she's very, very formative for me. It's all, she's also an example of why people don't buy me books as presents anymore because I brought uh, my my mum brought me Paula for my birthday. Um, and then, like two days after she bought it, I came home with a copy for myself because <laughs> <laughs> I saw it and wanted. it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's no way, that's lovely because
1: your mum knew she was like perfect present. But <laughs> yeah. If you if you were to ask for any books for Christmas, what would they be?
2: Oh no, I mean, there's so many. There's always so many. If it was going to be another folio edition, there's a really beautiful copy of *House Moving Castle* on there that I that I wouldn't turn down. <laughs> Um, I think w- gifting books. What I like to do, and what I would love for people to do with me, is I like to, and I haven't done this in ages because um I haven't given anyone a book in ages. But I like to give someone my own copy, and sometimes if I have time, I will beforehand reread it and annotate it with my thoughts throughout. I don't know that might be annoying for people, but I like to do it. Um, I don't know. There's something kind about of get more personalized than that. There's just something about giving someone the the version, like mm. your the your copy that you have read and that you have loved and then you just buy yourself a new one and it's, it's there waiting for the next person you want to give it to. Because those um, such
1: tactile things. Is there one particular book that you do that with the most?
2: I've done it a couple of times with The Ladies of Grace Adieu by um, Susanna Clarke, which is her short stories that are set around... Uh, set around Jonathan Strange I feel like giving someone Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell is a bit of an ask because it's completely wonderful and possibly my favourite book of all time but it's also massive it's just like, like physically difficult to hold have and like, you got much
1: holiday left you're going to need to take a week off work
2: <laughs> my edition of Jonathan Strange actually I got this very clever three volume box set of it so you can read one third of the book at a time which is wonderful that's Um, such
1: a good idea so
2: good uh but then yeah ladies of grace adieu is like a little book of short stories that are set in the same world and are also wonderful Um, so i've definitely done it with that a couple times it's also very pretty yeah oh my god so monday um i'm really excited
1: about telling her this
2: oh she is, I think, maybe the only writer in the world who is... I cancel everything. When per- I got Peronicia, I was like, no one disturbed me for- until I finished this book. I think she is just a genius, just an absolute wonder. She is also hugely influential. I think the reason that I... Well, not the reason, but one of the, one of the reasons I had an idea to do sort of an annotated novel with, with its own footnotes was Jonathan Strange, because the way she uses them is so magical and wonderful. She's wonderful. Oh, I love that. I love symmetry. I love good book symmetry. (laughs) I do have, um, I've got Captain Corelli's Mandolin sitting there, which is the stupidest reason I've ever bought a book, which is because, and again, this was in in tandem with my sister, who noticed that it's the book that Hugh Grant is reading at the end of Notting Hill. Uh And because all the books he mentions in that movie are really good, she was like, that's probably good. So we bought it and it is really good. (laughs)
1: the rest of Hugh Grant's book lists in Nottingham because I can't at all.
2: He just talks a lot about Henry James and Jane Austen and all of the sort of classic authors that we enjoyed at the time. I, I think I own
1: the complete Henry James and I read him quite a lot at university and I studied him and I'm like if I had all the time in the world I'd just reread the whole of Henry James and I did have all the time in the world for 18 <laughs> months and I didn't reread
2: Henry James. <laughs> Oh no! See these are false promises we make ourselves, but that's okay. Sometimes instead of reading Henry James, you read the Princess Diaries. Well I worry that,
1: you know, what we were talking about, revisiting old books and changing our minds about characters. If I were to rewrite reread Henry James, I might change my mind about myself and discover I'm not nearly as clever as I hoped I was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is always the risk, yeah, that's true. Do you have
1: a favourite literary drunk or a favourite literary drink or party?
2: Oh, I mean, my favourite literary drunk party was you at at the first big literary party I went to, when you, the first, like, we ran into each other and you were double fisting champagne and it was beautiful and it was one of my most <laughs> cherished memories of you. Oh, I love that, I had no idea. I mean, I meant in a book. <laughs> I know, I know, you. but I loved it. It was at the Harper Commons party at the VA. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh my goodness me, that hangover. I left my wallet there. <laughs>
1: And I I left my wallet, but I came home with Joanna Trollope's name badge.
2: Amazing. No, that's... um, In a book, though, oh, man. I love a dinner party scene. This is in movies as well. You know, in rom-coms in the 90s, there was always a dinner party scene where everyone talked over each other, like in um, Sweeps in Seattle. (laughs) Like, there's that whole scene with Harold is allergic to every kind of bee. (laughs) And it's, like, those sorts of things. And I'm trying to think of, you know, a more literary example than a rom-com movie. I really like. There's a scene in um, the last battle, which is the last of the Narnia books, where everyone's in heaven, but there's the the dwarfs that like were evil or bad in the lead up to getting into heaven, and they don't realize they're there. And there's this feast in front of them, and they don't see it and they don't smell it, and and they think they're eating like clumps of hay, and it's it's really it's really really visceral Ooh. and weird. Yeah.
1: Now I quite fancy some shredded wheat. I want. To <laughs> huge thanks to janina you feel it just below the ribs is out now and published by harper perennial at the moment it's available in the us but if you live outside the us your local independent bookshop can help you order it if you ask them nicely you can follow us at whybooked on social media look out the book recommendations words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite book. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Janina at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Jacqueline Suzanne. I've got a library copy of Gone with the Wind, A quart of Milk and All These Cookies. Wow, what an OG see you next time
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. guarantee. Guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.